Welcome to the Efficient Spend Podcast, where we help marketers turn media spend into revenue. My guest today is Jake Abrams. Jake, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Paul. I'm definitely excited to chat. I would love if we could start by just giving the audience uh, a brief background into your experience with optimizing marketing spend. Sure. Um, so my... Um, Honestly, like it started when I was in college. Um, I got my first job out of college by running Facebook ads and targeting them at companies that I wanted to hire me. Um, I was like deep into my senior year. I didn't have a job. I wanted to get a job at a big ad agency, didn't have any leads. So I made a website called hirejakeabrams.com. I spent like $200 on Facebook ads drove to the website, um, you know, was looking at my cost per click and those sorts of things. And that's actually how I ended up getting my first job. Um, so I was optimizing ad spend, I would say like many years ago. Um, and then I worked at that agency for three, three and a half years, less so on the media buying side, more on kind of high level strategy and creative I was on the account team for um, New Balance and worked on different, you know, product launches, rebrands, those sorts of things um, at that company. And then um, joined a direct-to-consumer company um, here in Boston as a head of marketing. And that's where I really, like, actually learned how all of this works. Um, we did a Kickstarter campaign. We grew that company from nothing to eight figures per year. And a lot of it was done on the back of Google and Facebook ads, um, which is kind of what led me to what I'm doing today, running a uh, D2C uh, growth marketing agency where that's really all we do. Focusing on um, e-commerce brands specifically, right? Correct. That initial test of wanting to um, run Facebook ads to try to get hired what gave you the context to do that? I, it was not a, an original idea, honestly. I had like, I did some Googling and there was someone else in the past that had a similar idea where they, uh, I don't think they ran Facebook ads, but they did some sort of blogging and got a job at, I think like HubSpot or one of those larger software companies. So that was the original inspiration. And then, um, I thought that was a good idea. That was a way to stand out. And, um, you know, it was pretty easy to target the right people at that time on Facebook. You could plug in um, specific companies, you could do job titles, you could do, you know, cities. Um, so I was able to really get super targeted um, with my, my ad spend at that time and, and find, find the right people. Right. And, uh, probably had kind of like an aha moment of, wow, this, this really works. This can be really effective. Yeah. I went from no job leads to five or six interviews in like two weeks. And it, it really was an aha moment. I was like, wow, if I, I can create a campaign that has a compelling message and then use these ad buying platforms to put the message in front of the right people and then really cool things can happen. So yeah, definitely was a, an early aha moment for me. 
Sure. And sparked a passion that has uh, built an entire career off of, which is really cool. Um, at Odyssey, would love if you could just give a high level background. I know we talked about, you know, working with e-commerce brands um, into kind of your your client roster and, you know, the type of D2C e-com brands that you generally work with. Yeah. So we work with mostly seven and eight figure e-com brands that want to grow their revenue and improve their CAC. That's the, the typical you know, assignment. Most of the brands that we work with are tech forward brands. So they've invented a new piece of technology that solves a consumer problem. Um, the reason for that focus is that the company that I got my start at, that I was head of marketing at, it's called Ember Labs. Um, that was the category that they were in. They were an MIT founded company. They invented a wearable device that provides immediate cooling relief, like a temperature control on your wrist, essentially. And um, that once we figured that out, found the audience for that and grew that, naturally, that's the category that I learned that those are the case studies that I built and we've kind of just layered on top of that. So a lot of these brands that we work with now, we work with a connected fertility tracking device, um, a smart messaging board for the home, a connected high-end indoor garden, uh, countertop appliance that cooks dinner for you, a smart home composter, golf range finder. You see the trend. Um, yeah. Here. <laughs> yeah. Really fascinating, uh, products and obviously, um, the job to increase revenue, reduce CAC, improve efficiency is not an easy one. Um, and you're working with a, a ton of clients now. Um, if you could give some context into your onboarding process and what I'm really specifically interested in is how are you setting clients up for success? Because a lot of times goal setting is very much an art and a, and a science and you want to set realistic goals. Um, and I wonder just how you think about that at, at Odyssey and with the clients you work with. Yeah. From a just executional standpoint, we'll do the typical 30, 60, 90 day goal exercise. Um, just to set expectations around what we're actually going to get done tactically in that first month, that second month, and, and third month. The first 30 days are really about resetting the foundation, right? So maybe um, maybe they have a CAC problem because they're trying to target too many different audiences, or maybe there's a revenue growth problem because too much of the spend is focused on one product and they have these other products that could help them scale more efficiently. So it's really about like looking at the business at a deep level, understanding the problems that we need to solve and then outlining the plan to solve it. Um, in terms of onboarding, I, I would say it's really a balance between resetting that foundation and trying to find some quick wins. Like everybody wants to get off to a hot start, right? Um, so I don't, as the agency partner, like to come in and 
make the client feel like nothing good is going to happen for 60 days. Nobody's okay with that. So in that first 30 days, we want to try to find a couple quick wins. Maybe, you know, it's some iterations on top performing creative that they have in their account, or maybe consolidating some Facebook campaigns or there's typically like a couple of those quick wins that we can get live. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the two sides of it, right? Outlining that 30, 60, 90 and resetting the foundation to solve the problem and then finding some quick wins to keep people happy and excited. Right. And, and almost kind of uh, building a, a habit loop that they know that they can trust you and that you are going to get shit done. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've been working in paid marketing for close to a decade now. And when I started, I wanted to learn everything about paid advertising, right? How to optimize uh, individual channels like like Facebook and TikTok, um, how to test creative. And now, as I've uh, been in this career and I've been at a specific startup for a while, I've started to see the ebbs and flows of um, the economy, of demand. And I've become more interested in things like conversion rate optimization, changes to product and pricing. And I kind of have this philosophy of, you know, before spending any money, what is what are the things that you can do from an organic perspective so that when you do amplify, um, you're amplifying something that it, is going to be efficient because um, you can you can run great creative, but if you're driving to a, a poor product, um, it's not going to work out. Are there quick wins or low hanging fruit on that side of the pendulum? Right, a little bit less on the Facebook account side and more on the like you said, maybe identifying products and things like that uh, that you look at. Yeah, um, you know, I think. The biggest thing that I see with companies that have a CAC problem is really just a lack of focus on the audience. So, um, you know, unless you're you're at like a huge scale where you have multiple customer segments and multiple products for those customer segments, the best way to get more efficient really is to narrow the focus of the audience, right? That's really what I learned at Ember Labs where we have this wearable device that provided immediate cooling relief. And as a 20 something year old guy at the time, I wanted, I, I thought about all the use cases for stuff that was relatable to me. So, you know, um, just comfort like in the summer or uh, it also warms. So like warming in cold offices, all these sorts of things, but ultimately the core customer were 45 plus year old women going through menopause who had a problem with hot flashes. And the only way to, to scale that company efficiently was to go very narrow on that audience and own that audience. So anytime I come in and look at a company that's in that kind of seven figure a year range and they have a CAC problem, that's really the first question that we ask is like, are you, are you too broad with your audience focus right now? And can we narrow that down? Right. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, because if you think about it uh, from a perspective of diminishing returns, 
it may be that you haven't hit those uh, diminishing returns within that given audience and you're trying to spread yourself too thin and the marginal CAC in that maybe lower intent persona is more expensive than if you actually just got that one audience right. Exactly. And people are surprised by just how much you can do with one audience, like how much revenue you can really get. Um, and especially if there's competition too, right? Other, if, if you're not solely focused, if you have a large audience, addressable market, and you're not solely focused on them, someone else is going to come in and solely focus on them and beat you. So if, as long as it's large enough, like getting really narrow with that, that's, that's typically a good first step. Um, you talk about CAC a little bit, you know, I think that CAC has uh, become definitely top of mind for a lot of folks recently. And I think a lot of folks are talking about cutting marketing budget, right. Being more efficient, um, especially in this economy and the, and, you know, post COVID, um, on the revenue side though, you know, how tied are you to revenue targets and how do you think about the difference between, um, attributed revenue and maybe what you're measuring via like a Facebook pixel versus, Hey, we want to hold ourselves accountable to your like total top line, uh, revenue goals. Yeah. So we will, um, oh, I'm back. we will set targets for channel CACs and channel revenue, and then also blended CACs and blended revenue. Um, so I would say the blended, unless the company's doing a, like a very high amount of revenue, like they're already doing 50 to hundred million a year, the, the work that we do really does make an impact on the blended CAC and the blended revenue. So um, that's something that we'll look at you know, let's say it's like a um, $100 AOV product, maybe the blended CAC goal is $20. And we're spending only on Facebook and Google. We're looking every day, every week, every month, are we hitting that $20 blended CAC goal? But maybe Facebook could be 30 because that's more top of funnel. Um, so we want to hit that 30 on Facebook, but make sure we're hitting 20 on the blended. That's kind of the, the approach that we would look at. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and and I guess, uh, you know, it's also why setting channel level CACs is important and setting different CAC goals because different customers have different LTVs, different channels have different LTVs too. And also in order to scale, you actually, and grow, you need to eventually increase CAC thresholds um, to be able to go into more upper funnel channels as well. Right. And I would say just not being so tied to channel CACs, that's, that's like the hardest step for people to take generally while you're scaling. Like you're not going to scale to like 10, $15 million a year obsessing over your directly attributable Facebook CAC. You have to, at some point, kind of let go a bit and optimize for eyeballs, right, on organic, but also paid and still pay attention to those channel CACs and those like channel revenues, but 
you know, also look at things like your blended cost per visitor to the website, right? Like, is that going down if you invest in a more top of funnel channel? Um, and then make sure your blended revenue per visitor is staying high. If you can get your cost per visitor down and keep your revenue per visitor up, like you're winning. Um, but you're not going to do that just being solely obsessed with your, your Facebook hack. It's like the hardest step to take, I think. Sure. And, um, it's also hard to, uh, communicate that, right? I think, uh, incrementality is a large part of that. Um, you know, I work for a brand that does a lot of app acquisition and, um, install optimized campaigns. So with the changes, um, with iOS 14.5 and SCAD, we saw those CPAs rise. Um, and there's this idea of the ad stock effect that someone sees an impression and doesn't convert within that seven day click window or one day view window. And then of course those CPAs are gonna look worse if you do longer term analysis, you can see that they are converting eventually. Um, and to me, this is one of those things where you have to, put your common sense hat on and think about your own consumer behavior and how you interact with ads. And, um, it's not a linear path for the most part. Um, just to give you an example, I just recently bought a pair of Allbirds. right? I've known about the brand for years. I've seen 575 Allbirds YouTube ads, Facebook ads over the years. Right. Um, I don't know what I was attributed to and what was effective, but, uh, so I, I, I agree with you, like using those blended metrics as the, the North star, and then some of that channel level stuff is, it can be very directional. Yeah, hundred percent. And, um, that's why, you know, we really focused on the focus on the paid acquisition side, but we like to at least, you know, offer value and strategic support for the other things the brand has going on. Right because we know it, it matters. So are they, um, you know, are they building up an organic TikTok following that's going to increase eyeballs, right? That we can eventually sell to more efficiently with paid ads. Are they capturing emails at at least seven to 8% because they'll convert at some point. Um, all those things matter. Um, even though we don't execute obviously every piece of that marketing playbook. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. And um, we can hop around a little bit here. Um, I know that you, a lot of the content that you write is uh, focused on creative um, and more specifically influencers. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you think about influencer marketing, not only from a perspective of leveraging influencers to run effective paid marketing campaigns, but the overall impact of influencers on a e-commerce brand. Yeah. So, um, the primary way that we're working with influencers is on the paid side where we, um, you know, we'll do, we'll reach out to a bunch of influencers that fit some sort of brief for the, for the client. And our goal is to get them to agree to a, a content capture and whitelisting type of arrangement to start. So we just did this with a supplements brand and we went out looking for kind of guys, fitness guy influencers who would connect with this target audience. 
and we got, I think, eight to 10 of them on deals where they provided three videos, a ton of raw footage, extra hooks, and six to 12 months of whitelisting access to their pages. Um, and that essentially allows us to just rent out their page for a large period of time and run 50 different ads through that page with all the footage that we got. So that that's like the primary way that we do that. Um, I think having a an organic influencer program going also is super important. We have um, another brand that we work with that is more in the apparel space and they run their influencer like affiliate program internally, but it feeds into our ad content. So they have um, tons of influencers posting about like photos, videos of themselves wearing, wearing the apparel every week. Um, they get organic sales and traffic from that. And then it's also ad content. So I would say like any brand, if you have some sort of budget, it, it should be part of your, um, should be part of your operation. You should be seeding product or contracting people, getting them to post a certain amount of times per month. And then you get the rights to use that content in ads should be doing that. For sure. Um, yeah, I, I consider it to be a, a just a production cost that should be a percentage of your ad spend to make that ad spend more effective. Um, to double click on the example that you mentioned earlier. So wondering if you could go through your process of how are you identifying the influencers you want to work with, you know, researching that, identifying what following they, they need to have and things like that. How are you reaching out to them, negotiating with them? What does that kind of like end to end process look like? Yeah. So it starts with just writing a brief that outlines the ask, right? So um, summarizing the product, the, um, the ask that we're going out to with the influencers, um, you know, uh, how many followers they should have. Are we going for macro people? Are we going for micro people? Um, what is our budget, overall budget and then budget influencer and deliverables that we're trying to get from the influencers. So, so that outline. macro, that macro versus micro, it basically depends on the scale of the brand at that time and like what you're kind of thinking. And I mean, do you have like a strong opinion on, should you be working with a tier one influencer or not? Cause sometimes I think about like, you know, you don't need that big influencer. If you're running a paid ad, it doesn't matter how much like reach their channel has if you're just amplifying it anyway. Yeah. I'm like, so I used to be fully on the side of the spectrum that the following doesn't really matter because you're paying through the media spend for the reach anyway. But I do think in certain cases, partnering with people who have a larger following, there's a, a big benefit for that. Um, like for this fitness company that we worked with, we did source, I think, four or five people that had over 100K following and were verified on Instagram, and their ads performed really well. And I think for selling this product, a layer of credibility was really important and that stamp of approval. So um, in some cases, I think it can make sense um, to partner with those types of people 
I just wouldn't pay for the organic posts because they're so expensive. I would just pay for the ad rights and the whitelisting and that's how you can get them to be more affordable. Um, and then mostly though, we are working with people that are lower follower counts. So, you know, 10K to 50K following. And we're just looking for people who are killer content creators. Um, they, they know how to edit a video the right way. Maybe they, for some of our, our companies that sell higher end products, they have a beautiful home with a like eye-catching aesthetic. So their ad is just going to look amazing compared to just an ordinary person. So um, yeah, it depends on the budget and the brief, um, but there, there's an argument sometimes for going for people that have a more of a stamp of approval and higher follower count. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you have any thoughts on working with influencers uh, on more of that, organic side doing things like sponsored podcast reads and, and things like that? Have you done a lot of that stuff in the past? I have not. Um, we do, we have one client that we do more like organic style um, influencer management for, and it has worked well. Uh, basically this client just had a lot of um, refurbished product and they wanted to make use of the refurbished product. So we've been able to find, I think like 50 to 60 people to post content in exchange for refurbished product. So there's like creative ways that you can, that it makes sense um, in a case like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, <clears throat> I think, um, I think it's really smart. You know, I, I, I lead a lot of the creative production for, for self, the brand that I, work at and we we work with several several different production partners they will outsource to influencers and in some cases we've done influencer partnerships in the past like one-off ones and i think creating kind of a more scalable solution always works and um you know i i'm exploring some influencer partnerships uh where it would be more of a sponsored read on a on a youtube video but if you think about the the costs of that, um, the cost for them to do one ad for us and then us amplify it with our conversion rate might be more efficient than the cost for them to do a 60 second read on their video because they're just charging like a crazy CPM to be part of that real estate. You're amplifying it and you're still getting their stamp of approval. They're talking about your brand. Um, so it's kind of like, it might be, it's more effective way, maybe. Yeah, I think so. You have control. It's more scalable that way too, right? Like if it's working, you can throw more fuel on it. So in general, I, I just think one-off influencer partnerships died like two to three years ago. I, it's just not really something that is done. It's either this ad right and whitelisting model or more of a longer term partnership with X amount of organic posts per month. Um, that's kind of what I've seen. For sure. Yeah. And um, depending on the industry too, I work for a, a FinTech that heavily regulated compliance, legal, everyone wants to have a say on the approval. And so 
um, I had the, the one example we worked with an influencer to create one asset, um, high performing asset, but, um, took basically six months to get it approved before we could run it. So, um, that was a good, uh, learning experience for me. Um, another influential, uh, kind of part of ads can be working with actual customers. Um, I think, you know, I've set up customer testimonial collection programs in the past. It's been super effective for me. Do you have any perspective on leveraging actual customers to create ads or have you had any experience working on like referral programs in in the past to help, um, you know, acquire customers efficiently? I would say like this may be still an untapped area for us. I'm not, um, at least on the referral program side, since we're more, just more paid acquisition focused, we don't usually touch that portion of the business. Um, in terms of leveraging existing customers for content, um, I think like our easiest approach that we found is if we come into a brand in which there's a like longer product onboarding period. So maybe it's like a complex appliance or it's just something that's like, it's going to take time to like ship this to someone, have them get it up and running and deliver value in the form of content creation. The first step of our influencer process is to work with a brand to identify anyone who already has the product, who has some level of content creation skill. And then that's who will we'll get them on a monthly content creation contract, you know, four videos per month, we'll throw you $500, something like that. And that's like a good way to hit the ground running. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Super, super efficient and cost-effective way too. Um, I know we have a, a few minutes left. Uh, I guess on the experimentation side, I know we were kind of, um, talking about this earlier, you focus on creative testing a lot. Um, maybe give some examples of some noteworthy creative tests that, that you've run, um, that have had some large wins, both from an ad perspective, or maybe even like a landing page experience, uh, perspective and yeah. How you think about experimentation more broadly. Yeah. Um, I would say, I think the biggest unlocks typically come at the messaging level of your testing strategy. So just like a different, slightly different pitch or angle. And we found that discovering that there's typically um, kind of untapped insights within the customer reviews or customer surveys. So I can give one example. We had a, a brand that was very niche. They made um, kind of like athletic greens, but specifically for golf. And they were pitching it as um, like a performance drink for golf that helps you focus and perform better. And it, I don't know, it wasn't really working that well, that type of pitch, but they had a bunch of customers in the reviews that were just saying that they, they drink this as a hangover cure for golf. Like they go out, 
on their like guys golf trip, you know, and then they have a, an 8 a.m. tea time the next day. And this is like the hangover cure for better golf. And we made some ads around that. And like within a week, we like the click through rate doubled the ROAS that we couldn't figure out finally hit like one and a half to two. And it was like, it was there the whole time. Um, so stuff like that, I feel like that's the biggest unlock uh, from a creative experimentation standpoint. Um, and then I would say, you know, um, what else with creative? Paying attention to the smaller things as well. So maybe it's not a brand new angle, but looking at what you're saying and what you're showing and figuring out what's working and what's not within those two buckets. So for this indoor garden company, it's in terms of what we're showing, the garden has to be shown in a home. It can't be like a studio cutout style shot. And the garden has to be like overflowing with plants. Like it has to be like, wow, like I can grow all of that in my home. Um, and then what we're saying, there's still kind of working on that, but like for any brand, there are all these small kind of elements for what you're showing and then what you're saying. And you just gotta drop the stuff that stops working and just continue iterating on the stuff that is working. Um, and those small little wins do add up. For sure. <clears throat> and um, exaggerated works, you know, <laughs> um, especially in these social media channels where you have so little time to capture attention. Exaggerated definitely works. Um, Cool. I also, I, I actually was before this, I, I read your post about your POV on uh, post-purchase surveys and how using them to determine attribution might not be as effective as using them to understand more about why your customers are purchasing, <clears throat> which uh, hit home for me. I think a, a lot of folks are talking about Hey, use a post-purchase survey where you know you you miss out on so many attribution, so much attribution data. Now, that's something your customers are telling you, and then you think to yourself, well, when you're this is another example of how how are you, your how is your consumer behavior um, when you're filling out a post-purchase survey? How honest are you? But if someone asked me, hey, why did you purchase this product? I actually think to myself, I might be a little bit more honest with that response for some reason. Cause it's like asking for my opinion almost. Yeah. It's them. Yeah. You, I, if I get asked that when I buy something online, I do give an honest answer. If they ask me where I came from, it's like your Allbirds example. Like what would you fill out on the Allbirds post-purchase survey? You know, like, and there is value. I don't want to like downplay it too much. I'm sure there is value in that. I know I haven't done a scientific analysis or anything, the idea behind that post was really just creating a, a steady flow of customer insights from these different sources. So reviews are one source. And then the post-purchase survey, since you're getting, you know, people get 60 to 70% response rates on those. It's just an amazing source for insights and it's all automated. 
So just take advantage of that and use that to come up with brand new creative ideas to get out of this like iteration cycle that a lot of brands get stuck in. For sure. It's a, it's an important feedback loop too. And I think that there's a difference between the feedback that you receive from a customer after they've used your product for a certain time period versus what is their immediate reaction and reasons for purchasing in that moment. It might change a little bit. So it's interesting to see that. 100%. Um, Cool. Okay. So last couple of questions, rapid fire here. Um, This is the Efficient Spend podcast. I know that you run a bunch of different channels. If you could kind of go through the most efficient uh, marketing spend that you've had, and then also the most inefficient. Um, Most efficient, this is cheating, but like Google brand (laughs) keywords is obviously the most efficient. Um, That's always funny when people try to take credit for that. But um, most efficient, I think like consolidation on Facebook, that leads to efficiency. Google, uh, like Pmax or non-brand with landing pages that align with the ad, like that, that stuff has been efficient for us. Um, non-efficient, um, what else? Uh, Pinterest sometimes is tough. We were able to figure it out for one brand, but it's been tough to figure that out. Um, in the past, I tried broadcast TV when I didn't really, this was like five, six years ago when I, I didn't really know exactly what I was doing. Um, that was not super efficient. So some examples, I guess, of that full spectrum. I have also not been able to crack the Pinterest code and frustrating because it feels like such a useful channel for uh, for paid, but I haven't been able to crack it. Um, awesome, Jake. Uh, Thank you so much for, for coming on the, the show today. Uh, and where could people find you? Yeah, um, you can find me at our, our website, growodyssey.com, or just check me out on LinkedIn. Um, just type in Jake Abrams in the search bar and I'm sure I'll pop up. Cool. Thank you, man. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Paul.